What's up, everyone? This is Must Go Faster, a pop culture podcast for the people. I'm your co-host, Ben Brantlinger, broadcasting from Brooklyn. And out in Long Beach, California, figuring out how I can squeeze in another movie while recording this podcast, I'm Robert Denfeld. In this episode, the time has come for us to rank our top 10 movies of 2019. Oh, yeah. Rob, this has been a fantastic year for films. I think you and I can both agree. I I I agree. It, it can be argued that it was the strongest of the decade, which is now over, but I yeah, think... Uh, I've heard a lot of people saying that. Yeah, that's not an original take by me, but it's one that I agree with. Yeah. And I think, you know, things started off a bit slow in you mm-hmm. know Q1, I would say, of, <laughs> right. of 2019, but the back half was just an incredible slate. Stacked. Um, and you know, and we're a great get summer, in... too. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um, you know, I was going to say, looking at my list, with the exception of one movie, I think mm-hmm. all of mine were released in either September or later. Okay. Um, wow. So, yeah, while there were, you know, we had certain moments in, you know, in the summer and spring, and there was, uh-huh. you know, definitely some great stuff out there, the theaters. Sure. The ones that I felt most strongly about in the films that I really connected with um, were ones that that appeared, you know, these last few months. And uh-huh. that's not surprising, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a version of that is true. Kind of like almost every year, but sure. I, 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 w- I, I really noticed it this year. And I think, yeah. you know, in 2019 you had, you know, the return of masters like Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, you know, had the end of these mega sagas in, mm-hmm. in Marvel's phase one and mm-hmm. the Skywalker saga with star Wars. You right. had some younger directors, I think really make big leaps in their career. Yeah. Uh, taking that next step to kind of really be like, wow, what are the next 20, 30, 40 years of this filmmaker, you know, career going to look like? So that Definitely. was exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sam Mendes, uh, you know, 1917. That's a film I haven't seen yet. A Hidden Life, mm. the Terrence Malick film, a film, another film I haven't seen yet. Um, I just wanted to introduce... Let's just go through all the films that we didn't see. Yeah. I mean, right, but those the are... First hour. <laughs> those are huge directors that, you know, made films, but, you know, I don't think either of us had a chance to see. Um, I just wanted to mention quickly that this is always the case, but this year it felt especially like this was the situation that um, I came up with a list of 28 films that I would still like to see. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously I won't end up seeing all 28 of those films. It's almost impossible to see every movie you want to see in the year unless unless it's your job. Well, the year is over too. Right, exactly. I was going to say, we recorded this on January 3rd, 2020. Right. So we're already into 2020. I didn't see everything I wanted to see. Um, A great year for foreign films. A lot of like non-English international films uh, that I'd love to see this year that I just, uh, you know, didn't get around to. Um, So, yeah, I mean, just to preface this list by saying, obviously, we haven't seen everything we'd like to see, but, um, you know, this this encompasses what we were able to catch this year. I think you can see those 28 films, though, at some point in your life. Yeah, I I mean, hopefully. (laughs) I mean, the (laughs) problem is... I don't know if I could ever... (laughs) Yeah, the problem is I make this list and then the next year starts and there are great movies like Rapid Fire coming around the corner, (laughs) you know, so it's just... uh, it's hard to yeah, ever yeah. like fully catch up. So yeah, I think before we just jump into our lists, you know, for me and I think Rob, you know, you'll, you'll probably agree. Like my list, these are movies that I think ultimately, you know, gave me the strongest emotional reactions this year. Sure, you know, and there's a lot of different emotions that my list, you know, provided me. But yeah. it's it's ones that I just connected with the most, either through the characters, the storylines, the filmmaking, uh-huh. and everything that goes into that process. Definitely. Um, yeah, and it's also, a combination. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was also going to say, just, you know, considering where it fits in a historical context. Sure. Um, and the zeitgeist you know, of the culture this year. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, seeing new movies as it's uh, no secret is one of our favorite things and activities <laughs> to do throughout the year for both Definitely. of us. We're lucky to, you know, live in areas in, in uh, L.A. and in, in New York City that uh, movies are still <laughs> going out to the theater is still you know a pretty big part of the culture and it's sure. one that we definitely really take advantage in so yeah we haven't shared our lists with one another at no, all not at all we of, of course anticipate there will be some overlap mm-hmm. so um if but, if there is know, an overlap situation we'll do our best to just talk about the movie once uh together yeah and then we won't reveal where the movie falls later on on the list for the other person but uh you know we'll just talk about it at that moment Okay, let's get into our top 10. Rob, what is your number 10 movie of 2019? So my number 10, I'm going with Dolomite Is My Name. Mm. It's showtime, y'all. You love him and I love him. Put your hands together. Dolomite Is My Name. So this is an R-rated comedy that came out in the theater, but also is is a Netflix film. It's the obvious, you know, return of Eddie Murphy, it is basically the story of the true life story, I should say, of um, Rudy Ray Moore. So he he plays the real life Dolomite. Uh, Eddie Murphy just gives an amazing performance in this in this movie. It's directed by Craig Brewer and comes from the writing team of Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, they they wrote The People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, Ed Wood, among others. Um, so this this movie is just basically the Rudy Ray Moore story, and it kind of all comes together around them trying to make the first Dolomite film. So uh, this character, you know, Rudy Ray Moore, played by Eddie Murphy as Dolomite, uh, they wanted to make a movie uh, about, well, essentially only Rudy Ray Moore wanted to make the movie. Uh, he was just like really transfixed by film and, you know, thought that was the way to take his career to the next level. Um, he saw the success of other comedians in film. And the the film Dolomite Is My Name kind of just revolves around them trying to make this film and, and make it happen. Um, so it's kind of like a behind the scenes production film in a lot of ways, which I appreciated as a person living yeah, a movie about making movies, learning about production. Yeah, exactly. It's a movie about making movies. It actually features the the director of photography of this real movie is a UCLA or was a UCLA student. And he says that in the film. And it's like a it kind of crew led by what appears to be UCLA students. So that kind of hit hit, you know, tugged on the heartstrings a little bit for me. Um some great performances by uh, Keegan-Michael Key, Wesley Snipes, uh, Divine Joy Randolph as Lady Reed was really great. Uh, Mike Epps, Titus Burgess, just a really great like um, ensemble cast of uh, actors that, you know, definitely had a lot of fun making this film. It's, it's high. It's a very vulgar film. Like if you're if there are kids in the house on the same level, I wouldn't put this movie on Get them out of the house or, you know, watch it. Yeah, like watch it with headphones on or something. It's very vulgar and a lot of mostly just cussing, but there's like some nudity involved and some scenes. But it's just a really fun, uh, heartwarming at the end tale of like a real life person that has a career arc in this film. We sort of see see the person uh, struggling, find success, you know, fight for their passion, 
Um, so it's just a really like heartwarming and interesting film and the return of Eddie Murphy. And I just really enjoyed it. I have not seen it yet, but it is yeah. it is on my, my list of to-dos. Right, check it out on Netflix. So my number 10 of 2019 is Hustlers. Oh, good one. <laughs> when I was a kid, I always wanted to work with animals. I was close. These Wall Street guys, they stole from everybody. And not one of them went to jail. So Hustlers... Um, I saw it. It's inspired by the viral article in a New York Magazine piece... Um, it's this very well-paced, always compelling story that follows a crew of strippers in New York City who begin to steal money by drugging stock traders and CEOs who visit their club. They run up their credit cards. Um, things progress from there. And, you know, I think this movie, Jennifer Lopez, no one un- owned a role more than her in 2019. I think uh-huh. definitely deserving a Best Supporting Actress so charismatic no one could be better in this role like just love the performance i know she's performing halftime at the super bowl which i think is a strategic move of course in her campaign to be nominated for for best supporting actress this movie you know it has as you know so many films have been but you know definitely influenced by goodfellas and its approach to story with Mm -hmm. voiceover and the the time span that it takes Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of drugs violence crime sex um Mm. but uh, you know it definitely kind of stood on its own in a lot of ways even though it borrowed from some of those classic you know gangster films it it really taps into like the impact of the recession so this was happening um during that time does a good job of helping kind of the viewers understand the character's perspective and and motives on what they did and and why they did it. You know, it came out in late September and I feel like it was kind of buried by more notable films that kind of came shortly after. But I, yeah, I just really, really enjoyed it. Uh, Directed by Lorene uh, Scafaria, Mm -hmm. just a really fun, always engaging story. And I kind of liked, yeah, just the overall arc of it. And kind of just telling the begin to end, you know, the ups and downs, the the rise and downfall. Like, yes, those yeah. are certain tropes, but I thought it was just all handled really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was, yeah, a big enough fan to put it in as my number 10. Nice. Rob, I know you saw this and I remember I you saying maybe you weren't as as much of a fan. Um, I mean, I liked it. Uh, I didn't have anything like particularly against it. Uh, I did watch it at Universal Studios after a long day of trekking around the park they uh they compensate you with your parking pass with like a free movie ticket so we took advantage and saw hustlers um yeah i mean i enjoyed it uh it's not one of my favorite of the year but i think it's definitely worth talking about and you know a lot of people saw it it did really well and you know the return of jennifer lopez is notable and yeah i think you summed it up pretty well all right what's your number nine of the year number nine i'm going with a uh sort of little scene in the U.S., I, I think, uh, a movie called The Souvenir. Mm. It's terribly complicated. Bob, you're a thief. Anthony, you stole my stuff. That's exactly how you make me feel. So uh, this is a film that came out uh, in August, late August this year. It's an R-rated uh, drama, and it's about... Um, It's shot on 16 millimeter film, which is notable because what it's about is basically a young woman going through film school in the 80s in uh, Sunderland, England. Um, And so it's written and directed by uh, Joanna Hogg, 
And she is uh, nearly, she's turning 60 this year, but this is a very like autobiographical film about her experiences in film school. Um, you know, I don't know how all the details about how much is true to her experience and, and what have you, but um, it felt very real, uh, very, you know, um, just authentic in a lot of ways and especially about like the film school experience. So my first two films, uh, not surprisingly are about like film and making films and film school. So, uh, it's kind of interesting, but yeah, it's a really dramatic, uh, essentially she's struggling to like find her voice in, in film school. Um, but then comes across this charming, interesting young man who, you know, works for the foreign office sort of has this like nondescript job and, hobbies and stuff but he's this really charming guy played by Tom Burke there's a dynamic going on between uh Tom Burke's character and and Swinton Bryan's the two leads uh he has a drug addiction she's a little naive to it uh I'll I'll leave it at that um it's just a very dramatic tale and had some beautiful shots that left me a little like stunned and staggered at times. It looked nice. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the souvenir. I believe it's on Amazon prime. So I would recommend that to, to people if you haven't checked that out. So my number nine, I'm going with the lighthouse. Nice. Keeping secrets are you? No, sir. Watch your beans. Hark! Hark! So, I just watched um, this. I just watched this for the first time. Yes. So, directed by David Eggers, it's a follow up to The Witch, which came out. Isn't it Robert Eggers? Is it Robert Eggers? David Eggers is an author. Damn it. Um, yeah. I think you're right. It's Robert yeah. Eggers. Yeah. 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 Anyway, thanks for no worries. Me there. So the trailer of this sold you exactly on what this film is. It's yeah. two characters, two uh, lighthouse men, I guess. Uh, Robert Pattinson and William Dafoe. They're isolated on a remote lighthouse island off the coast of New England in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. It is about their descent into madness. And as you watch it, I feel like you're, you go mad with them. And yeah. it's... It's part drama. It's it's there's definitely horror in there. There's fantasy. It just gets weirder and weirder as it goes along. And it's like it's a movie that's like a complete assault on the senses, definitely. both visually and sonically. Mm-hmm. Like you can't relax at all during this movie. It's yeah. it's shot in black and white. It's shot in uh 35 millimeter with that square aspect ratio of 119 to 1. So it it has this basically square box yeah. that you're looking at as you're watching. It's very claustrophobic. The sound. Yeah. Yeah. Everything from like the seagulls. Yes. The damn seagulls uh, to the crashing waves, rain, this like lighthouse siren that's just kind of like reoccurring throughout the movie. It all adds up to like this symphony of harsh attacking sounds that are just like constant throughout the film definitely there's a lot of just indelible nightmarish imagery and Mm -hmm. the movie it's a little i would say redundant at times Mm. given how isolated it is but i was just so impressed by how specific egger's vision was yeah um just a lot of respect to all the research that he went into kind of replicating a world in the 1890s right um it's just a movie with an incredibly unnerving environment. Like you feel uncomfortable as you're watching it, which is similar to the witch. I definitely like this movie more than the witch though. And I'd agree. It's the theater. I was seeing it in. It was 
it was really cold in the theater, which I feel huh. like enhanced the environment. It kind yeah. of like kept you on the edge. Sure. And I've heard, you know, the inter- uh, interviews with the director just saying how difficult the production is. And just as you're mm-hmm. watching it, you can, because they really shot this on, you know, location. Yeah, and they shot it in Nova just Scotia. All, all the elements, yeah. know, equipment and the crew and uh-huh. 35 millimeter. And just, it sounds like quite a uh, hellish production. Right. But the result, it's just, you know, these towering performances by Willem Dafoe and Robin Pattinson. I mean, these two just go at each other. Yeah. The dialect that they speak with, I mean, I think there are times it could have used maybe some subtitles because it's this yeah. really specific type of um, dialect and yeah. vocabulary that they use, even though it is in English. Um, well, Robert Eggers is clearly fascinated by language and yeah. dialect. I mean, I watched The Witch for the first time over the winter holiday season with my brother, and we actually watched it with subtitles on because he was like, it's just easier to watch with subtitles because yeah. you can uh, you know, pick up on more names and such. Yeah, I mean, there are scenes in the Lighthouse where I was just like, it'd be miserable to be one of these actors oh, right yeah. now. Just Looks in this brutal. condition. Yeah. Uh, the entire cast is... Like the IMDb <laughs> listing, it's 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 Pattinson, it's Defoe, and then someone playing quote mermaid. You're right. Um, we see her it. a few times. Yeah, it's just overall very memorable experience. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is like I guarantee that this will become like a cult movie classic. I think it it's already so has. strange and yeah. specific. It just lends itself to that kind of cult status. So right. I can see like in twenty years people dressing up as Thomas Wake <laughs> right. screenings of the lighthouse. Sure. Um, so yeah, number nine yeah. is the lighthouse. Rob, you just watched it last night. So it's fresh in your mind. Yeah. You want to add there. I mean, I knew it was going to be on your list. That was like, we, that was the only question we asked each other about this list, uh, was, is the lighthouse on your list? Um, and I knew I wanted to watch it. I think if I had seen it in the theater, it, it would have had a better chance of making my list. Um, just watching it at home wasn't quite as, you know, dynamic as seeing it on the big screen. Uh, it's beautiful black and white cinematography and, uh, you know, the production design. Robert Eggers is a former production designer. Um, yeah, just really amazing film that I'm definitely going to watch again. Like, I'm glad I bought it on iTunes and I'll definitely watch I it. bought again. it on iTunes. Yeah, I had to. I had to. <laughs> I love the iTunes. Yeah, I know it's the, <laughs> the first movie I've bought on <laughs> iTunes in a while, but I really wanted to watch it before making this and it didn't make my list, but it's right up there. Um, definitely one of my top, you know, 20 of the year and really interesting, cool film. And just, I'll leave you with cool. Never... Is cool the right word? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I <laughs> it's a weird one. I mean, it's, it's definitely hit, weird. Uh, never yeah, kill a seabird, uh... Ben. Never kill a seabird. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> On All that right. note, Rob, what is your number eight of 2019? So my number eight is Midsommar or Midsummer. Mm. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity. I just wish you would have told me, that's all. So uh, depending on who you listen to, Ari Aster was on some podcasts we listened to this year and said Midsommar, uh, whatever, Midsummer. R-rated drama horror. You're going thriller. in on the ratings with all these. Yeah, R-rated. I don't know. I mean, just to give some people context, if you haven't seen right. it's it, it's definitely a hard R. Yeah, uh, it's a hard R. R. Yes, very fair. Uh, and it's a deeply disturbing, gripping experience I had in the theater watching it. I haven't rewatched it. Um, I, I know it's available now on Amazon Prime, I believe. Um, 
Yeah, I, it's available to rent everywhere. Yeah. yeah, I would like to watch it again. I just didn't get around to to a second viewing. Um, I didn't like it as much as Hereditary, which was Ari Aster's first, uh, you know, major motion motion picture. It came out a couple years ago, but I was just still really staggered by this experience. Um, just a really like gripping thrill ride. Uh, some you know obviously starts with like one of the more horrific like bone chilling blood curdling scenes that i've seen in a while um with the family yeah that's 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 maybe the most terrifying scene of the 21st century <laughs> i know yeah but it um, sets you I up was, i almost had to leave like i'm not i'm not i'm not exaggerating like i had to recalibrate <laughs> like my brain after yeah. that scene like i was like is it gonna be like this and it was tough it turns out while there are a lot of other moments of shock and horror that by far was the most disturbing right. sequence I, I i think in the movie um well it anyway, almost felt continue, like but. yeah it, it felt like ari aster almost just giving the audience a little taste of horror to like satisfy the hereditary expectations but it also mm-hmm. served to sort of put this bug in your head about the entire film's uh you know uh scope and what it what the character especially Florence Pugh's character was like going through throughout this experience like she's clearly mourning this like horrific event throughout the whole film so which provides context for the character and her choices she makes um and I just thought it was like beautifully shot amazing cinematography some of like the really cool techniques of like the drug trips and the way they made the colors you know blurry and like moving trees um just like a really cool if you if you've seen it you know what i'm talking about florence Pugh's performance was just captivating and hard to take your eyes off i i think she's you know uh, i'll talk talk about her another performance she had this year later but uh just one of like the the best up-and-coming actors yeah breakthrough star this year um and some of like the most cringeworthy relationship dynamics i've seen in a movie in a long time and this this is a breakup movie yeah on like dement the most demented breakup movie maybe ever made right Uh, but that's the ari aster has said like it's a breakup film ultimately what this is yeah with the backdrop of like this wizard of oz right on acid Drug trip. type of yeah i mean he said he weird. wrote it after a, a difficult breakup with a girlfriend and yeah i mean the ritualistic like folk horror elements of the film are sort of disguising the what it's really about and it's just a movie that some images stuck in my head all year uh i talked about it a lot with people and you know maybe not like the most perfectly executed whatever but story yeah I just, it's it was very like jarring <laughs> definitely a memorable experience i really admired its originality had super high expectations like hereditary was right one of my favorite films of you know uh, the year you know the marketing and, and, and trailers for this got me you know super excited like oh my god like what am i gonna see here it mm-hmm. delivered you know to extent on that i would say for me, kind of the the second half of the story mm-hmm. got a little kind of messy and meandering. There are types of this film, parts of this film, that are kind of like just boring. I think on purpose in a way, and they're yeah, it does move kind of at a snail's pace at times. There's a lot of humor. Yeah, in it this is. Movie, it is pretty funny to in a weird way. A degree where I was like, this is kind of killing some of the tension. <laughs> I don't want that it to be. It this does really funny. well. Like. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of humor. I mean, it's yeah. not just like, oh, there's some comic relief once every 30 minutes. Like, it is the the frequency of humor is was pretty striking to it's me. Like the, it's um, like the plot got caught up in a bear suit in the second half of the film. <laughs> one could say that, yes. Uh, yeah, but uh, just 
it it was seemed like the most memed film of the year and like captured the zeitgeist of of the top 10 top 10 most memed film right i mean there's some striking images and some things that are lasting in people's brains so uh it's also you know i don't i don't know if you mentioned like the whole thing is in pitch broad daylight yeah yeah you know after they get to to sweden yeah it's like purposely overexposed at times and like really bright and yeah yeah. and just the geography of like the set knowing where certain objects are and their significance and i think it, it does a good job of just laying that out to the viewer of like these are where the characters are this is what these homes and objects and what they represent and yeah. to get there you need to go here like i thought it just did a very good job of laying that all out but yeah the production yeah i had like mapped the the arc of the story for you mm-hmm. so yeah i have mixed feelings about it um but definitely one that i could see upon rewatch uh kind of now that expectations are set because right. i've already seen it i'm able to kind of go along with some of the turns uh you know and storytelling choices that Ari Aster makes but definitely I mean mad respect to the ambition and yeah. originality of, of Midsommar for sure cool. and that opening that scene in the opening 20 minutes I mean dear god <laughs> like I might I might uh hit the old skip button when I, yeah. when I watch that <laughs> and don't forget that so, old man jumping off legs first I'll never forget that at yeah. moment totally okay <laughs> let's let's uh yeah that 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 scene was was, that was quite disturbing as well all right <laughs> My number eight is 1917. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. You're good with maps, that true? Good enough, sir. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, we will lose 1,600 men. I snuck in 1917. It was the last film I saw. I saw it on New Year's Eve day. Nice. During the day. I have not um, seen this film, but I can't wait. So Sam Mendes directed, set in France during World War One. Story, two British soldiers are tasked with kind of this mission to deliver a highly secret and important message deep into enemy territory upon delivery. Basically, the idea of thinking it was going to prevent this uh, impending massacre of uh, British soldiers. So right off the top, I mean, the first thing you need to say is it's filmed in a way that the entire movie appears to be one long continuous shot, courtesy of Sir Roger Deakins, the God, the God, um, and one of the best DPs uh, of all time. Yeah. So it's just like a ride that you can't get off, albeit at times very somber ride. Like this uh-huh. is World War One we're talking about, but yeah. it allows the viewer to really survey everything in the frame, what's happening outside, just like the central character that's in the middle of it. Your eyes really like wander in a in a good way. Like mm. it allows you to take in these World War landscapes. Um, France, it puts you right there with these soldiers. Like you're with them just every step of the way. And you know, you could say like, you know, if you remove the one long take element and it was just like serviceable cinematography, how effective is 1917 as a whole? Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but yeah. it doesn't matter because the one long take is in the movie. That's what they executed. That's a big achievement, and you can't deny it. It's, um, hmm. I will say, like, a quieter film than I expected. Like, it has its moments of loud, intense warfare, but mm-hmm. also really breathes and allows to kind of tell its story. Um, I like that. You know, for example, there's, like, a moment where, like, they're crawling through barbed wire, and, like, you realize that that's just, like, can be just as deadly as, like, a bullet, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, really great score. Couldn't help but be reminded by Dunkirk, Nolan, hmm. um... Hans Zimmer, who, 
you know, especially after listening to that rewatchables with Tarantino, freaking right. Tarantino that was amazing. And talking about Dunkirk. I yeah, love that. We'll have to talk about that some other time. But, yeah. Uh, harrowing war combat. Like, I don't want to give it away because I know this movie recently came out. Most haven't seen it yet, but I will say that there is a, there is this sequence of like one of the main characters running through this like war torn town at night and just the way it's lit and staged and tracked by the camera and like uh-huh. where the scene ends up. Like the character is basically journey from like point A to point B to point C. Like Rob, eat your film school hard out when you <laughs> see this sequence. I like, can't wait. You're going to be, aroused yeah and it's just has this very like sweeping cinema's awesome climax <laughs> cool that um again where just th- that th- the one uh long take approach like it's a shot that's just meant for it and it's just uh, really just beautifully done um the cast is nearly a lot of unknown actors although there mm-hmm. are some big names that appear later in the film but i think it just captures like how many of these soldiers were just like young innocent boys in a way uh-huh. and i also just want to say seeing this in theater shout out to the dude in front of me that shushed the couple beside me like Love it. you're a hero man more courageous than i am that's something i've thought about doing many times but yeah. never kind of just have the heart to <laughs> audibly shush someone but this yeah. guy had no issue doing it turned around Shh. and by the way they were quiet the rest deserved of the movie, it so, oh, yeah, yeah. you know um not all heroes wear capes nice i love that sam uh, mendez like Go ahead. Or, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I haven't seen this film. Uh, I had an opportunity to see an early screening and I just wasn't able to make it. Um, and I haven't made it over the winter holiday. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I imagine it would have been on my list if I had had a chance to see it. But, uh, you know, anything Roger Deakin shoots, I'm into. Sam Mendes is actually, you know, one of my more, one of my favorite directors of the past, like, two decades. Um and yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to this one. Yeah, Sam Mendes, like, it's interesting, like, where he sits in director's tiers. Like, he's definitely not talked about in that upper echelon. But yeah, but he's made I some feel great like he's films. Under, underappreciated, like, obviously directed American Beauty, like, a film I still love, even though it has mm-hmm. a very complicated history and retrospective. Sure. And I think it's become, like, trendy to be like, that movie sucks. Like, I still love that film. Yeah. Um, he did Revolutionary Road, Jarhead, Skyfall, which right. I think is one of the best, if not the best James Bond film of all time. And now Mm -hmm. in 1917, like he's built a hell of a career over the last 20 years. And I just, I feel like he is underrated in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which is weird. Um, so cool. That's your number eight. Uh, yeah. Moving on to number seven. Then, uh, my number seven is a movie you've probably heard of. It's the Irishman. Only three people in the world. I wanted these and only one of them is Irish. You know, strong. I made you. Everybody listened to Russ. Watch him. He was the most powerful man in the country. I know things they don't know I know. So is this movie on your list, Ben? It is, Rob. It is my number four. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, you don't have to reveal the number necessarily. You could just say... Oh, yeah, I screwed that up. We, okay. We, so just say... In, in pre-production, is, we, we said. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I won't do that going forward. My mistake, my mistake. No, no worries. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> it's on both of our lists. So we'll just talk about it now and, and get it yeah. out of the way. Um, so this is a movie that I'm very perplexed by. Um, obviously, everyone knows it's Martin Scorsese's uh, three and a half hour epic, uh, you know, the story of Frank Sheeran. Um, what is it? What's the book called? Uh I heard, I heard you, you paint, paint houses. houses, right? Uh, yeah, that's, adaptation. 
you know, obviously a metaphor for spraying blood on people's interiors. Is that obvious? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe we need to explain that. Well, yeah. Obviously, that means that uh, he no, shoots I, people yeah. in the face. Um, right. But yeah, uh, it's a very violent film, uh, but also a very quiet film in in very like slow to a like, you know, molasses pace at times. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I just watched this movie again. Can you believe that, Ben? I watched this movie again because I... I watched it in theaters and then watched it in Netflix, albeit I, I did split it in two different yeah, sittings, but... Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. But I don't know if I really love this movie, but there's so much about it that's, like, riveting and just the the ensemble cast on screen together you know you don't just even say the names but you know like robert de niro joe pesci uh al pacino um harvey keitel bobby cannavale like just all these people together in the same film is is you know kind of a thing on its own and then i don't know like there's so much about the cinematography, you know, the de-aging of Robert De Niro's character, which I found to be hard to watch at times, but other times felt okay. You know, I, I was saying to Natalie last night, I think it's just the fact that it was Robert De Niro's face in the de-aging that made it tough for me because, you know, we're, we've seen him look young so many times that this just didn't look like Robert De Niro young. It looked more like this video game tin tin sort of version of... Uh, Robert De Niro, which I found hard to watch at times and like very distracting, took me out. Um, but besides that, like his performance was really captivating. His, I mean, the the movie's kind of like driven by his narration and his voice is just like so smooth and silky and and you know he's like stumbling over not his words. Silk. I would not say I wouldn't call it. It's like a gravelly. Well, yeah, I I don't know. It's <laughs> it's kind of just like relaxing. It's like you're listening to yeah, your grandfather yeah. tell a story, you know, on the couch. Definitely, definitely. And he's stumbling over his words at times as this older man. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I the first time I watched this movie, I was like, I didn't like that, you know? And the second wow. time, yeah, I really that's wow. how I felt. That's how I felt. Uh but then the <laughs> second time, I was a, just more like awe struck by the production of it and how many people like the cast of this film is like a thousand people there's so many people right. involved in cameras and film and yeah it's, it's like the biggest movie <laughs> but it's like about I, I can't handle it yeah, yeah no, it's, there's it's, just it's, so much production design that went into it like just for yeah. the the achievement of it all it's the number seven on my list interesting okay okay so i have i have quite a few thoughts but i will just say like I love like just how secure Marty is in his ability after all this time where like the direction and camera work in the Irishman, like it isn't, you know, that flashing compared to something say like Wolf of Wall Street where he dials sure. it up everything to 11. This is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Um, and, it, but it's just the right amount to tell the story that he needed to tell here. Like yes. there are still se- certain sequences that are absolute masterclasses. Oh, the way that really see that. He's the way the they block the film. camera, yeah. The way he blocks the camera is it's like no one else does it. It's it's mm. remarkable. So, and this is the exact movie that he needed to make at seventy seven years old. I mean, of course, like you can think of this as the trilogy with Goodfellas and Casino. This is the right final chapter. Like starting with the opening shot, it's like a geriatric version of the Copacabana <laughs> shot in Goodfellas. Yeah, it's like rather than seeing chefs and waitresses, it's like caretakers and the elderly. <laughs> and I thought, like, 
you know, just things like showing the fates of different figures when they first appear on screen. Oh my god! Just like under underscores the themes of just mortality and like yeah. just this all ends and gangsters die just like everyone else. And yeah, like, and just like what this what these people what their lives are about. You know, it's uh, it they all yeah. they end mostly terribly. Can I can I just interject really quickly here? Yeah. I actually wrote down the destiny of most of the people in this film. Let me just read these off real quick. Shot in the head, blown up by a nail bomb under his porch, shot three times in an alley, shot eight times in the head, shot three times in the face. One guy well liked by all died of natural causes, shot, <laughs> shot six times in the head in his kitchen. So it's just like, I mean, yeah. it's, I, I thought that was Gangster a life. nice, do not, do not recommend. Nice touch. Yeah. 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 So the cast, I, Pesci for me, I think stood out the most like for example just like the shaking of his hands during the scene in De Niro with jail like that's just heartbreaking stuff yeah with the bread and the wine it's a very subtle performance he does so much with like his eyes and facial oh, yeah. expressions it's a nice contrast from like the maniac that he plays in, in <laughs> right. Goodfellas at Casino like he I love, does a lot with di- without dialogue here I love them playing bocce ball just before that too and then that that yeah. bread scene that was touching De Niro I think him as a character compared to what Pesci and Pacino were playing like wasn't as interesting to me but still a great performance like I love the uh bombing out a laundry place line <laughs> and just like that De Niro like little uh glint in his eyes yeah, and yeah. just the face that only he is the only person that's ever been alive that has that kind of face and it's just so <laughs> specifically De Niro Pacino the extremely ex- playing the extremely you know exuberant performance of Jimmy um, Hoffa, which I thought was really great. I think the movie kind of goes up a notch in terms of just how engaging it is once he comes into the the film. Uh-huh. And yeah, the de-aging for me, like it just, it's not, um, I feel like it's the kind of the best they could have done there. Like it didn't distract me at all. I know that's been a big talk of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it didn't detract. Stephen Graham, I want to say also is like Tony Pro, the like rival mobster. He's right. a very lively presence on screen. He's got, a really um, just funny and really well-written scene of them when he meets um, Pacino's Hoffa and there's all just kind of like this back and forth about him showing up late and just kind of the way that that scene unfolds was really uh-huh. like classic Scorsese and um, just really, really great. You know, at three and a half hours, like I am someone who also thought, you know, it was a little too long, but yeah. it's also really freaking good. Like both can be true at the same time. Right. And, I think like the last 40 minutes elevated the whole material for me. Just like the way um, De Niro's character tries to reconcile with his past, mm-hmm. with the bridges that he's burned, living with that regret, going like casket shopping. Right. The conversations he has with his daughter, the priest, trying to just grapple with the end of his life. It's just really well played by De Niro. And he just gives, mm-hmm. you know, so much humanity to the role. Right. Um, and, you know, really just makes you kind of sympathize with him, even though he's been, you know, for the most part, this really bad person throughout his life and is yeah. responsible for a lot of death. It's just, um, I really enjoyed the historical aspects of this story mm-hmm. that added new context, the presence of food as with most <laughs> yeah. Scorsese movies. Yeah. This one made me hungry. Like there's the ice cream Sundays. There's right. the bread with red wine. I mentioned the cereal at the diner. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, like the movie just looks so freaking great. Like, right. It's lavish, the lighting, the interiors, the wardrobe, like, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, the DP Rodrigo Rodrigo Pietro had a lot to do here. I mean, the the budget was you know close to two hundred million, and you know it. Uh, I don't know. We don't 
ever probably know how it performed on Netflix, but I, I'm sure it's done They'll very well. Yeah. Um, but he had the DP Rodrigo Pietro had so much to deal with, uh, in terms of the de-aging and the, you know, sequencing between different eras and different, you know, production design and dress and, you know, uh, de-aging, aging up people, making people look older, making people look bigger, uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, the the fat tony dominic lombardozzi's character uh, you know his his makeup was a little distracting to me i don't know why they didn't just choose like a heavier actor to play him but that's that's another story um yeah i mean the the music was really great it's like very um you know like classical horn heavy like swing music mostly um and it was kind yeah, of yeah and like relax- classic rock and you know yeah, yeah. Kind of sweet spot of scorsese right and um yeah, I mean, there are. I think the time, the length of the film is an issue if you're not like fully engaged in the story, which is also so. It's like a very slow paced, and there are obviously like some really interesting shot sequences and the way thing the camera's blocked, as I said. But it is kind of like a boring film in a lot of ways. But the length and it it feels almost longer than three and a half hours because of the way it's paced and the way you know, the shot length is kind of consistent throughout and makes it feel even longer than it really is, which is staggering. Yeah, um, I agree with that. I wouldn't call it boring, but it does It does even feel, I would say it, it almost feels like four and a half hours. Yeah, I know, it. like, I know. Not... And I think that was on purpose. I think he wanted it to just feel like this this slog and just the 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 f- yeah well the feeling of age and aging and and right. this time this time more than the first time for me i felt what you were talking about in the last 40 minutes of just the sadness the deep sadness and inevitability of it all and uh and like the relationship dynamic between anna paquin and robert de niro's characters like his daughter and his daughter really just observing him throughout the entire film like silently looking at him and she kind of just knows that he's a bad person or her entire life and we're we're just seeing it kind of through her eyes and and that kind of rang true with me more this this second viewing um so yeah it's a really powerful film uh and a tough one. You have. I feel like you're. I can feel like the internal battle going on. Yeah, inside it's you weird. You like I, I love obviously this movie, you like but it. I also like. It's didn't number like seven it. of yeah. 2019. Yeah, but you're. But you have. You know, your critiques, which I think are, yeah. are fair. I will say, um, to me, like this movie was like a warm blanket in a lot of ways. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. And it's. I think this. The Irishman. It will only grow in its legacy after you know Scorsese. Unfortunately, like you know, he's old, like, how many more movies is he going to make? Like, when he, unfortunately, and inevitably passes, like, we all do, like, I don't like saying that, but that's the reality. Like, I think people are going to look back on this film, The Irishman, with even more meaning. Um, and it's one's legacy that's only going to continue to grow because they're going to look at where this came at this point in his career. And given kind of the subject matter, I just think, like, it's going to really have a lot of longevity with yeah. how we, how we think about the Irishman. So I agree. And yeah, anyway, features um, some, feature some classic Scorsese tropes, like breaking the fourth oh, wall at times. And you know, the slow motion stylized sequences. And like you said, the yeah. long, long tracking shots that show the geography of a space, like all those things are great. And, you know, m- multiple sequences of characters taking naps, which I didn't think helped the, uh, the feeling <laughs> of boredom, but, uh, yeah, anyway, it's a fascinating film and 
Yeah. Yeah, it's the yeah, the tropes. I mean, it's the buffet of everything. All the Scorsese chart trademarks are in there, so it's definitely present, but yeah, just I love that he made this movie at this point in his career, and I think yeah. it's probably if I had to choose one front runner for for best picture as we are recording this. Sure. So, all right, where are we at? We're so that was my number seven. Seven. All right, my number seven. Yeah, is Waves. It's been hard, hasn't it? Let go of a prayer for you. How you doing with everything? I'm good. Just a sweet word. You know it's okay if you're not. So, look, you can call waves manipulative. That's mm. fair. But this was the most emotionally moving experience that I had at the movies this year. Nice. Written directed by Trey Edward Schultz. It was a deep, deeply personal film for him. His third movie, he's a filmmaker who had been bubbling up for a bit. It's the story of this uh, black affluent family living in the Florida suburbs. And it's just like, it wears its heart on its sleeve it wallops you with emotion. It's a sledgehammer to the heart of emotion. You know, it's just, it's a sledgehammer to the heart. Uh, <laughs> there is a moment in this movie where I audibly said in the theater, Jesus, like, and you could hear me, like you could hear a pin wow. drop and me saying Jesus. Um, there is also a scene towards the end where I'm like, all right, let's chill on this. Like this may be a little too heavy handed. Nevertheless, it really worked for me. There's a very clever use of sound design when the soundtrack is used in this movie. So yeah. like these increases and decreases in volume, he messes with like the reverb. It just like swirls around in your ear and like the music, the way it's pitched and hmm. the perspective of how it's heard is constantly kind of morphing around. And I just thought it was a really creative approach to that. Some of the music cues are a little too on the nose. Like I rolled my eyes, you know, there were at a few times, but it's so prevalent, like the presence that music has in this is similar to Booksport, where it's just like omnipresent at all times. There's Frank Ocean, there's Animal Collective, there's Radiohead, there's Her, there's Kendrick, there's Kanye. There's this um, A24 blog that he did where the director talks about all the musical choices in the film and huh. why they were specifically made, which I think adds really great context on what his intent was. Sure, that's cool. This The cinematography is really... Um, just drenched with like contrast and colors. There's like these teals and reds and yellows and it's it's very flashy camera work. There's a mm -hmm. lot of 360 shots and tracking shots and unique angles and movements that just really make the film feel alive. And something that I read too is like when um, Schultz was pitching the script to actors and like when he pitched to Sterling K. Brown, for example, it was like this rich like media PDF that you huh. would open. And basically like, as you would read it, there's, there would be these prompts to like play music cues that he saw playing in the film. And there were like different parts of the script that were in um, different font sizes and different colors. It just found it, it sounded like a really smart, you know, uh, creative way to communicate your vision and I thought that was like a really cool approach rather than just being like, here's a black and white script of just like all the words. It's like right. he actually put in these like dynamic rich media elements to the script. That's cool. Sterling K. Brown, heartbreaking performance. He's the father of the family. Um, again, like perfect piece of casting. Really like couldn't see anyone, you know, better in that role. The kids played by Taylor Russell and Kel Kelvin Harrison Jr., they both, you know, the story is really about those two, that brother and sister. The first half focuses on the brother, second half, the sister. 
uh, Lucas Hedges and Alexa Demi are great supporting roles who who really play an important piece in telling the story of the family. Hmm. And it's just like, it's a life movie. It's about, you know, family dynamics and forgiveness and about how nobody is all good or bad or just human. Right. And it's not flawless. Like I mentioned, it, it does mm-hmm. get a little heavy handed at times, but I was in on waves enough for it to be, just be really moved by it. And cool. I really, I got, yes, on top of like just the way that music and color was used. Mm-hmm. Those are why it, you know, it, it really uh, was able to kind of get into my top ten and be my number seven of, of twenty nineteen. Awesome! I'm looking forward to watching that. I was not able to get out to the theater for that one. Um, so cool. Uh, moving on to number six. So <clears throat> I'm going with Joker. <laughs> Let the debate begin. Is this on your list? <laughs> it is not. Okay. Uh, so it's written and directed by, well, directed by Todd Phillips, written by Todd Phillips and Scott Silver. This film was, you know, the highest grossing everything, whatever stat you want to <laughs> throw. Uh, budget of $55 million has grossed over a billion now to date uh, in the worldwide box office. Todd Phillips very smartly took uh, a percentage on the back end rather than being paid up front for this film. So he's, you know, the rich get richer on this one. He's due to make a lot of money off this. Um, he was really struggling after yeah, yeah. Uh, the Hangover movies. <laughs> right, right. He needed Financially. The, he yeah, needed yeah, he the really money. needed that now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this is obviously a controversial film in a lot of ways. Uh, was a huge success. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix will undoubtedly be nominated for best actor gave a staggering performance as Arthur Fleck, the Joker. Um, and you know, one of the most memorable performances I've seen in a long time. Uh, but what I really loved about this film beyond all of that was the cinematography, um, by Lawrence Schur was just incredible. Uh, it's shot on an Ari Alexa 65 and mini in LF, uh, shot in what? Shot in. <laughs> Can you say that again in English? Uh, those are cameras. Ari Alexa sixty five, the Mini, and the LF. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, the credits are in thirty five millimeter, which I found interesting, and it's shot in the Ari raw format, and then put back onto film for the print, which is an interesting process, uh, not done very often. I-, I talked about it with a few of my professors this year. It was a interesting uh, technical achievement also. But the, the cinematography was just really amazing, um, shot beautifully, but also like I've listened to Lawrence Schur talk about the the process and how he, uh, Todd Phillips and, and Joaquin Phoenix were really like finding the blocking while they were rehearsing the shot, you know, and, and there was a lot of like movement that was, you know, uh, unscripted and, uh, you know, just found in rehearsal and, you know, improv, improvisational elements to the film. So, uh, he had to, Lawrence Schur just had to be like on his toes at all times, ready to capture the moment, do his best with focus, whatever, whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean, for that reason, I loved it. It was just a beautiful film to watch. And then also it's about this, you know, character who obviously has many, uh, mental issues, but I found myself leaving the film talking about like nature versus nurture and the, the origin of insanity and, you know, like 
rather than talking about oh the Joker and comic book universe and where's Batman? Well, it's not. Yeah, it's not it about that. It, it's all. about no, mental it's illness and you know uh, wrapped up in this sort of package of the comic book DC you know universe. Um, so for those reasons, I I found it just very moving, um, well made, well acted, uh, very memorable. Um, the score was really good. Uh, everything I've said and, and just in terms of the sheer, like cultural impact that it had, I thought it was worth talking about and it fell at my number six I mean, movie. It definitely, yeah, had a lot of impact. I think, look, I mean, there's a lot to talk about the Joker and we're, you know, we, we still have a lot to get to on our list. So I'll, I'll just say the way I kind of approached thinking about it and I saw it opening weekend and was super excited for it, but, um, it's not on my list. Yeah. I think there are kind of three ways to to view this film. It's like one to see it as a uh, a Joker origin story. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, this is called Joker and this is about the guy who becomes the nemesis of Batman and Gotham mm-hmm. City and it is telling that origin story. So kind of looking it through almost a comic book lens even though it definitely doesn't lean into it it does not feel if it wasn't named Joker, if you didn't know right. any better, you'd almost would have no idea what the association is. So that's one way. Then there's looking at it as a um, like a gritty character study, highly influenced by 1970s films, right. like Taxi, Taxi Driver. Driver. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this movie, obviously. I think one of the issues I had, like it is so derivative from Taxi Driver mm-hmm. that like it, it kind of to a fault I thought, but. I actually thought it succeeded quite a lot as being kind of this gritty, compelling character study with a lot of 1970s influences in terms yeah. of the filmmaking. I thought it definitely succeeded in that respect. And then there's the third that you just like can't ignore where it's like viewing this movie through the current culture that we live in. Right. And especially with the final act, like, you know, it provoked a huge discourse online and yeah. was a very polarizing film. And like, I just don't know if it, it fully worked in that way. So like yeah. in those three different ways, like, Yes, as like a gritty character study, I thought it worked, was well-made, compelling. Obviously, Phoenix is, is incredible uh-huh. in it. The kind of the origin story, and then just like thinking about it in our current context with just the way the last act unfolded. Mm-hmm. Um, I was yeah. just kind of, uh, you know, unsure about, only seen it once. Right. You know, the power of Joker is undeniable as far as the impact that it made mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but... I mean, people, yeah, those, those are kind of my just very brief thoughts on it before we go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, no, I, I don't really have much else to say. I, you know, looking back on this film years from now, I may hate this movie, but right now it, I've only seen it once. It really impacted me. I left the theater thinking that was a thrill ride and really captivating. And looking back on it, it's probably not going to age that well, but uh, for what it was and how it affected people and how much conversation there was about it, uh, how successful it was, I just felt like it was worthy of making a top of the year list. Um, Albeit it has a ton of problems, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's just kind of where I'm at right now personally with sure. Definitely want to watch it again. I have, I feel like a lot of people that saw it said like, yeah, it served its purpose. I get it. I'll never watch it again because it was so horribly and relentlessly depressing. And that's, yeah. that's all true too. I mean, it's at the very same time, depressing. I do want to revisit yeah. it just to see how a second viewing, um, you know, cause that of course, um, 
you know, there's millions of films that your opinions change the second <laughs> you see them for better or for worse. So sure. anyway, Joker, yeah, it's a lot. God, I mean, we could do three hours on, Let's on, not. on the Joker. <laughs> uh, but I, I respect your your uh, position. You put it in in your top ten. What's so my number, number six? six, yeah, is uh, Jojo Rabbit. Nice. Here's Marshall Jojo. You're a top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today, you boys will be involved in such activities as four games, <laughs> ambush techniques, them blowing stuff up. Man, all these movies I haven't seen. Yeah, we actually don't have as much over. I'm sure there'll be I know. as we get, we get down closer. But um, So Jojo Rabbit, directed by Taika Waititi, who um, had his breakthrough with what we do in the shadows. He did Thor Ragnarok. He did the recent uh, finale of The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. So mm-hmm. Jojo Rabbit is just like a pitch black acidic comedy it's during set during world war ii follows a young boy named jojo who's a hitler youth member who discovers a jewish girl is hiding in his attic he has an imaginary friend who happens to be a very flamboyant adolf hitler who's played by the director now what i just said like that plot line can be seen as very problematic i'm not going to argue that and i was going into this movie like preparing to be critical of it could have been a tonal disaster given the subject matter but i just thought with the way the story unfolds thought it was really handled with care was tastefully done it just really worked for me it's a really tricky line to balance given the subject matter there's a very high degree of difficulty there but i just found it to be very inventive it's surprising it's moving uh the comedic timing from the whole cast is really great the performances of the two young boys uh roman griffin davis and archie yates it just captures like the innocence of how these young kids, they just, they didn't know any better. Obviously they're just kind of groomed at a very young age to become Nazis and buy into their evil propaganda, you know, but it's, um, you know, Scarlett Johansson plays Jojo's mom. She's great. She's had a, obviously big year. Um, Sam Rockwell, Rebel Wilson, uh, Reek Theon from Game of Thrones. Reek. (laughs) (laughs) Reek. Um, and just has like very playful filmmaking. You'll definitely get, you know, some Wes Anderson vibes as you're watching it. And, you know, I think it deserves a best screenplay nomination. Um, I thought this was maybe going to be more of a contender a few months ago when it first premiered at various film festivals and made uh-huh. a lot of noise then. Now, a few months later, it seems unlikely that it'll be recognized, but I would definitely put it in a best original screenplay. Nice. And I will say, like, with TD kind of emerged as probably like the best new comedic director of this decade. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you kind of look at what we do in the shadows with Thor Ragnarok, which I think is definitely probably the funniest, uh, most comedic MCU movie. Uh-huh. And then um, with Jojo Rabbit, he just, yeah, has a very original mind, is super creative. And again, I just think like this movie could have been just a complete piece of crap in like horribly tonably tonally and uh-huh. i just thought like it it, it it was able to um just balance everything and tell a really a really great story and nice. i just really loved just how original it was and and it was something i was surprised by how much i i liked it and uh it is my number six of 2019 love it we're getting into the top five yeah um rob what is your number five of 2019 so number five, I'm going with Little Women. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Not really. Women, they have minds and they have souls. 
I know you haven't seen this yet, so I'm not going to spoil much. And a lot of our audience, I'm sure, hasn't seen, seen it. seen it tonight in yeah. 35 millimeter at the Nighthawk. Oh, that's amazing. That will be beautiful in 35 millimeter. I'm jealous. Ooh, um, yes. Yeah. So it's shot on 35 millimeter on the RE Cam LT and ST. And How many times have we said the word millimeter? In this <laughs> I want to say like not over enough. Seventy. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of my a lot of the films in my list I was going to mention are shot on 35 millimeter, and it's no coincidence. Uh, you know, film still matters. And film for life. Yeah. Uh, so this is obviously Greta Gerwig wrote and directed, uh, coming off of Lady Bird. Uh, also stars Saoirse Ronan, uh, her you know strong collaborator, and I imagine quite close friend. They seem to be like sort of paired together like i heard sean fennessy say like scorsese and de niro in early scorsese's career it's an interesting comparison um so this is obviously the film based off of the louisa may alcott classic novel greta gerwig adapted the screenplay or adapted the novel into the screenplay um and I I'm have not read the novel. I've seen the 1994 version of Little Women. Um, I don't quite remember the structure and the way the story unfolded. But this this film, from a structure standpoint, is really fascinating. I'll I'll be curious to you know talk with more people about it. It jumps around a lot in different times, and I found it very successful in that way. That I would never. You know, they're they're played by the same actors at different points in their lives, but and only like a, you know, 10 year stretch uh, between the time frames. And I just was never confused, even though they kind of essentially look the same. Um, I thought that was a, a great achievement by Greta Gerwig and and the DP uh, Yorick Lasso. I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's beautiful cinematography. It's it's very bright, but also a lot of soft lighting so it it feels very like flooded with light but soft and victorian and pastel-y and just lovely uh it's it's a very lovely film beautiful to watch uh it just the i don't know the the structure was the thing besides the directing and the performances and and yeah i think those were like the things that stuck out to me first but then the structure and and the writing was second Amazing uh, ensemble, Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon, Laura Dern, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, Chris Cooper, Tracy Letts. And then there's another, uh, I don't want to say the person's name because it was a bit of a, a shocker when this person came out. You, you'll probably know when that happens. Um, beautiful score by Alexandra Desplat. Uh, incredibly moving that guy look at his imdb his prolific career as a composer is pretty remarkable over the past Mm -hmm. 30 years or so um tears welled up in my eyes three or four times watching this film had multiple like yeah full body i mean you are a cry you you are a weller of well i definitely well yeah i well a lot but not as much (laughs) recently uh and in in this film, I was very just like gripped by the emotional ride I was on, and uh, yeah. you know I was drinking like a a caramel macchiato with an extra shot, so I was just like <laughs> just in there. I was riveted, you know. I was I was all about it. Had some right, you were buzzing. Yeah, chill inducing moments. Um, a, Whoa, a great step man. in in Greta Gerwig's uh, career arc. I think it's like an interesting follow up to Lady Bird, but I did hear that yeah. she wrote this screenplay before making Lady Bird, so it's. You know, it was like a, and and it does kind of feel like a natural progression when you think about the themes of this film. Uh, a lot of things about like following your own voice, and yeah. so yeah, it's like it, it it kind of followed her story in a lot of ways. And yeah, um, 
they did a great job with like the rehearsals clearly in this film everything like felt very natural as you're watching it between a lot of characters and uh Greta Gerwig spoke with Sean Fennessy and talked about how she wanted it to feel more like a theatrical production and creating like a company of actors rather than just like one star and this is the lead they're all kind of like a lead of their own story and you really felt that and it was a really emotional film and I, I just really loved it Boom. Yeah, I'm excited to see it tonight. And cool. We'll be, we'll be texting afterwards. All right, yeah. my number five is Uncut Gems. Nice. You like to win, right? This is no different than that. Black Jewel, power. This is me. This is how I win. This is also on my list a little bit later down. Ooh, oh man, well, we're, we're in top five territory, so I'm, I'm excited to see where it lands. So... It should be noted, we saw this together, Rob, in, yeah. in Northern Virginia a few days after Christmas, did our annual uh, movie out, and we yeah. unfortunately kind of only see each other in person once a year now, given <laughs> that we live on opposite sides of the country. But right. this Uncut Gems, you know, it's about the seedy underworld of, of sports betting and diamond jewelry set in the Diamond District and in Manhattan, it's directed by the Safdie brothers. I've watched a lot of interviews with them since, mm-hmm. and just like Me too. their energy and passion for film, they're yeah. such cinephiles. Like it's so infectious. Rob, I highly recommend to you the YouTube video of them going through uh, the Criterion Closet. Oh, okay. And kind of just losing their minds. I Good mean, one. God, that's you know, uh, that is content for you. Queuing so, that up right now. <laughs> yeah, actually, let's put on pause. Watch that. <laughs> yeah. So, man, with Uncut Gems, like. A lot to talk about here. Like, there's so many offbeat and like specific decisions and details that were in this film that stood out to me. Like, here's like just a random sample list, and I and I don't want to like spoil anything, so I'm gonna be like very kind of vague. But just like the opening credits, the camera going inside the gem, exploring its detail, then morphing into a colonoscopy (laughs) on the other side of the world of Adam Sandler's character, then pulling back in. the green lighting in the car trunk that he's locked mm. in at one point when his fish tank is poisoned, the imagery, like the red yeah. imagery going into the thing, like different camera angles, the close-ups, like these weird, like diagonal shots that are right. kind of like looking down on a character, the black light that happens in the sequence with the weekend in mm. like, like Keith Stanfield's character is wearing this orange sweatshirt and yeah. it like really just like stands. All these things are cal- like, there's such a, visual filmmakers and about like all these like random details. Um, Adam Sandler's character, like taking one of these frantic phone calls that he's kind of just always in, in this film, (laughs) stepping on the scale, just like little character beats that um, just add up. I feel like the music cues, like ending with this Uh pop techno euphoria number that (laughs) is just like, given what happens is like pretty jarring juxtaposition juxtaposition the score throughout the whole thing uh was really really interesting and and uh, yeah kind of felt like a character in the film yeah totally i know yeah it's like kind of this new age synth yeah score daniel Um, lopatin or lopatin did the did the score well there's like a lot of conversation chatter happening in like the background Mm -hmm. all at once during this movie even oh yeah the sound design and sound mixing was incredible yeah, I don't know how the hell they pulled that off, but like I feel like this movie breaks the record for a number of arguments in a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's just um, one argument the whole thing. It's true. 
Right. It's true to the volumes of, you know, a place like New York City, like these layers of conversations happening in public. Like overall, yeah. I think it's it's the realism that is the biggest strength of Uncut Gems. Yeah. Um, you know, like the restraint on violence at times, like you really, f- when there is violence, like you really feel the impact. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a specific moment we were talking about after the movie where Sandler, he gets like clubbed with like a night, you know, one of those like, what are they called? Like nightsticks or whatever. Yeah. And he's only hit once. Right. But, but you he goes hear down the, sap- and the thud and yeah. he goes down and like most movies, like he would just been like beaten like twelve times, and like right. you're like, okay, that person would be dead by now. That's just an example of again, mm-hmm. like the realism that this movie had, right? Um, and it's just like gritty in that way, and just raw, and it feels true to real life, and and I think that's the Safdie brothers' sort of specialty is just showing like reality, even as dark and twisted and frenetic. Yeah. Like this film is so jarringly fast paced and. And just like even even if it's a slow scene of like uh you know parents watching their daughter perform in a play at school, it's a, it's still like just uh feels like tension filled. I mean, obviously something happens during that scene that's very uh dramatic, but like even leading up to it, you just never feel like comfortable, and there's just this rhythm to the pacing that makes you feel a little on edge the whole time. And I should say uh, it's shot by Darius Kanji, who's one of my favorite cinematographers. And I think uh, he took a backseat for this film, saying that, like, this is not my film. I heard in an interview with Mm -hmm. the Safdie brothers and they were talking about their collaboration with this, you know, renowned cinematographer who shot some amazing films and very accomplished and much older than they are. Um, But he, you know, he came onto the film and said, this is your film. I just want to like deliver what you want and, you know, listen to them, but also provided the, you know, the experience and the contextual uh, knowledge of how to do things better and differently. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think that really comes across in the visual look of the film which is very unique and but also while it's so jarring and and frenetic it's also like pretty easy to follow what's going on at all times and you kind of like know who everyone is and where everyone is and so yeah it's it's really successful in that way this movie has the seventh most f-bombs in cinematic history oh wow uh sitting in between casino and straight out of compton um (laughs) amazing yeah it's uh I didn't even notice that, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) So we haven't even mentioned freaking Adam Sandler yet. I know, I know. (laughs) Which is like, obviously, that is like the main takeaway probably more than anything. Like, it's, you know, he definitely deserves best actor. Like, I think given the reception that this movie has had both at the box office and critically, like, I could see him getting in a slot in best um, lead actor. Yeah. Extremely competitive year, but I could definitely see it. He's just like the right shape to play right this character, vibe. yeah, Por- a rather portly fellow, yeah, yeah, um, but also like weirdly, weirdly in in shape because of the nature of his work. It's like he's constantly yeah, walking hustle. around the city and hustling, and yeah, and yeah, it just it, he worked. He's well you know, that. charismatic dirtbag. <laughs> yeah, really a good totally. band name by the way. I thought yeah. when I wrote charismatic that is, dirtbag, that is so, pretty good. You know, originally Sandler was offered this back in 2012. The Safi brothers have been working on Uncut Gems for 10 years. They yeah. first, the first draft was in 2009. They said they um, had over 160 completed right, drafts just, of this script. I can't even wrap 
my mind around yeah. the concept of that. So various basketball players were in line to play the Kevin Garnett character. Yeah, uh, I haven't even mentioned Kevin. Oh yeah, by the way, Kevin Garnett crushes it in this yeah. movie. Um, Lakeith Stanfield. Yeah, it was originally offered to Sandler back in 2012. He passed. Um, then it went to Harvey Keitel. They decided they wanted someone younger. Um, then Jonah Hill. Then the Safdie brothers. You know, Good Time from a few years ago was like a big hit. Then uh-huh. that was Sandler. Decided he was still like the most perfect choice, and you know he loved the Safdie brothers' energy, and mm-hmm. and, and they were able to cast him. Uh, Julia Fox too. Yes, plays, I wanted like, to mention um, breakout star. Her, yeah, Sandler's muse, like very grounded. Again, like authentic performance. Did yeah. not feel like acting. It felt like that's kind of just almost who she is. I know in, in real life. In a she way, she was incredible. Um, Garnett, he's playing himself, but like he enhances the film. Like it's an intimidating presence. Like that really could not, that could have gone South in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. it, but it, it just really works. Um, the use of non-actors in this movie, like the guy who plays like the heavy, he's uh-huh. like an actual heavy. I think, you know, <laughs> yeah. I heard that too. In New Jersey. Um, I sent you that text of Josh Safi. He met yeah. one of the actors at a craps table one night uh-huh. in like Atlantic city, at, like three in the morning. Uh-huh. He sent, he shared like a screenshot on Twitter where he just text the guy in the middle of the night, like, yo, movie and the guy just writes back like check mark yeah he's like it's gonna be really low-key just be yourself (laughs) oh my name's josh safby by the way like it was you know just which i thought was a really like uh you know a neat window into like how some of the casting actually came about right um the second act of this movie you know it does kind of meander a little bit but the third act just completely rips just keep like upping the ante i thought this movie Uh the way it ended it couldn't have ended in any other way um, you know, during the movie's final minutes, there was a moment, Rob, where you, you physically jumped out oh, of yeah. your seat. Yeah. I, I saw you it, do like a little, a little hop. Little I leap. put my, I, I definitely hopped. I put both my hands on my head. I, I was like floored by it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's also the kind of movie that like makes you want to make movies or write a screenplay. Like I, I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. really excited to see where the Safdie brothers, their career goes after this. I rewatched Good Time for the first time since seeing that in theaters. Um, and, you know, Uncut Gems is a big hit at the at the box office. They're both so young. They're 35 and 33. And, like, right. there's just so much potential there for them to have a long career of greatness. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm just very excited to see that unfold. And just shout out real quick to A24, the production oh, yeah. studio. What a that, year for them. I mean, they had Midsummer, The Lighthouse, Waves, Uncut Gems, The Farewell. Just in this year. Yeah, right. yeah. just yeah. things. Uh, the Souvenir, which was on my list. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's just an amazing year for the that studio. And um, yeah, Julia Fox, I think is like, besides Adam Sandler, is the big takeaway. I mean, Adam Sandler's in essentially every scene of this movie uh there's like one sequence with julia fox toward the end where it's just kind of her but it's cross cut with adam sandler um it's it's a remarkable piece of work and i can't wait to watch it again um and yeah i mean another 35 millimeter <laughs> film shot on film so uh yeah that is yeah. uh i'll just go ahead and say it's my number three it's your number five Ooh, okay, so yeah. it so falls a little bit five. yeah all right, All right, so, so we're at my number four now. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go with Marriage Story as my number four. I realized I didn't ever really come alive for myself. I was just feeding his aliveness. I'll never get to really be his parent again. He needs to know that I fought for him. This is 
my number i'll just say it's my number three because it's my oh, next one so perfect yeah let's uh let's get into marriage story okay so this is the noah Baumbach written and directed film uh came out in november uh came up on netflix in december uh december 6th i believe and i start i saw it in the theater at the landmark in november um i wanted to see it a little bit early and i i wanted uh you know the the theater experience for it uh just based on the buzz and you know stars adam driver and scarlett johansson as the leads and you know it's essentially a a story about a, a divorce uh painstaking uh portrayal of this divorce between these two people you know the dynamic of new york versus la is very strong in this film mm, i love that yeah me too and it's really well done and they talked a lot Although they're about, kind of hating on la as, oh they as crush you, la i mean right right and you, i like how you're like yeah i liked it still like because i mean um, as a, a lot Yorker, of the stuff i agreed with <laughs> right yeah you're like the space is overrated man <laughs> right uh, so yeah, uh, Sorry. you know it has a great ensemble cast besides those two leads, but I think Adam Driver's performance was, uh, dare I say, drove the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he'll be nominated for best actor and possibly oh, win. Uh, yes. You know the music by Randy Newman was deeply mm. moving and and tied the whole film together for me and really great score and and uh, gives it like a classical feel. Yeah, like, those are such like wholesome strings that randy newman like puts into a movie like it just it felt so good i agree and robbie ryan was the cinematographer uh shot on 35 as i said and uh, a lot of long takes in this film and you know a lot of craft going into making things look natural and like they were sort of spontaneous things that just happened in a room but really that obviously takes you know hours of blocking and rehearsals and uh just some really beautifully uh executed long takes in this film and you know the opening sequence of the letters being read uh that they wrote about each other and then like just so quickly right off the bat like the tragic nature of the fact that they can't read them to each other in therapy or they they just don't want to i'm like it just right off the bat like strikes you as such a tragic well i thought yeah those just like to those opening 10 minutes like I thought that was essential because it's like it lays the groundwork of why these two fell in love in the yeah. first place. So I thought that was just like the perfect advice uh, device to like kick off this story, which Agreed. from there it's kind of this downward spiral of of divorce. But yeah. I thought you really needed those 10 minutes. I thought that was a really smart touch to open mm-hmm. with them kind of just exchanging um you know in, in in the details of what they get about love it's not like these cliche tropes it's like things that are very right. relatable and the kind of things that you actually you know there's all the different ways like what you love about your partner and things like that and i thought like yeah there's like the big overarching themes but then uh-huh. also like she knows how to open jars when i can't yeah. you know or just yeah. like he's really competitive uh you know with board games or you know just all these like different yeah specific things that are unique to the the couples i thought was just like a really good touch yeah and it's just very you know heartfelt stuff that makes you think about your own relationship or whatever and and what you love about your partner and you know things that you would write and yeah it's very very touching in that way and um this movie is also very funny i wanted to say like in a lot of ways felt like a comedy at a lot of times and a few of the scenes but you know obviously tied together from 
by the sort of depressing nature of what's happening. And you could cut the tension with a knife at times, but there were still like moments of levity that just kind of like brought it, uh, brought it together. So it wasn't so like just, uh, you know, depressing to watch. It it had this sort of air of lightness, even though it was dark. Yeah. Um, I mean, Noah Baumbach just, he has a great ear for dialogue and just writing in a way that's, how people really talk to one another, especially in, you know, we live in these bubbles and these urban bubbles in New York and LA and stuff. But his movies, like it's really how the the types of things people talk about, the word choices used, how they kind of frame their language. Like it's just very much how, um, how people talk. And this movie, like it's called marriage story, but it's a, it's about the inner workings of a divorce. Like it's right. about, it's the process and the logistics and the legality and the mm-hmm. politics and mm-hmm. how it affects you on a day-to-day basis. Like all mm-hmm. the terrible decisions, both big and small negotiations that need to happen in order for how much it a costs <laughs> to be happy. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. It's like take a jarring. bath on this divorce. Yeah. Um, it's obvious, but like watching it, you're just kind of like, wow, getting yeah. divorced freaking is the worst. Like, exactly. you know, there's a, you know, and I thought just the spotlight that it put on that process was right. something that I really took away from this movie. And I really think, um, helps it kind of stand out as unique. The two performances of Scarja, Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver, they're just like so lived in, mm-hmm. you know, for example, like Scarlett Johansson, she does like kind of these reoccurring mannerisms with like, with her hands. Mm-hmm. That's like a very nice, like, subtle character touch and makes him uh-huh. feel just like a real person. And, um, the use of close-ups too, like right. it's a great vehicle for showcasing both driver and like ScarJo's performances. They'd also, the movie I think does a really good job of like not taking sides. Like you can kind of understand yeah. both characters perspectives and kind of why they did things in a way. Yeah. They're both flawed um, and they, yeah, they and both tricky. made mistakes and you know, you yeah. don't really, yeah, I think pr- very purposefully, you don't really end up rooting for either one of them. It's just kind of like sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's kind of just how in life something like this yeah. happens. And, and, They're and human beings. I, I, yeah, I also like, you know, you mentioned, yeah, the kind of supporting cast. Also, shout out to like, I couldn't find her name, but like the deadpan, like, father-child evaluator that comes into their home which is like a really the way that sequence unfolds and and what happens with driver with like Uh the switchblade right just like her like in the space like trying to like (laughs) sell (laughs) it's so deadpan and i thought really great um a few other scenes that i loved in this uh the scene where driver's character is about to get served and you can see like the envelope in the frame Mm -hmm. in plain sight in scarlett johansson's inner like her parents kitchen uh-huh. it's like this ticking time bomb that's like about to explode yeah Merritt but it's just Weaver like and the mom in that oh she's so good and they're like yeah. just yeah coming in and out of the room and just the way like i feel like that had to take like so much rehearsal just to get the timing right uh-huh. and it like it's it's directed like uh you know like a play as like yeah. a lot of this movie is but i just thought like great tension building in that scene um, well real quick i wanted to say about the divorce aspects and how it's so realistic like i know Bombeck talked to a lot of people that had gone through a divorce. He said that in the interview with Sean Fennessy on the big picture that he just wanted to capture real moments from people's experiences, you know, struggling with, you know, separating a family and how difficult it is from all the financial aspects that we talked about. So it felt very, it rang very true to, I'm sure a ton of people. And 
I'm sure was difficult for a lot of people to kind of consume because it was all too real. But uh, yeah, just really uh, a remarkable achievement in that way, just to, to tell a story that impacts and has impacted so many people's lives. Yeah, and then I, we have to mention just the big climactic argument scene towards the end, just like yeah. the way it slowly builds. It starts so quiet, um, you know, it's pleasant enough. And then just like the way it builds and just boils into rage. Yeah. Maybe a little overacting by Driver at the end, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, super powerful. It's like a pour your heart out acting school, like monologue. I feel like actors seek their whole careers for like a scene that juicy right. where they can just let the emotions just fly but um they're not just like simply emoting like it's serving the story and i think where that scene is placed in the movie like it just it works so well and it, it's so effective and yeah it's just like the movie is really tender and bittersweet like i love the final scene of the film mm-hmm. and yeah it, it, this is a, a great great movie my number three so that was my number four your number three and then your number four is the irishman Yes. So we already discussed that quite a bit. Yes. Um, my number three is Uncut Gems, which we already mm-hmm. discussed quite a bit. And so yours was Marriage Story number three. So we are down to number two and number one. And, and I have a, I have a faint feeling, suspicion <laughs> that there, we have not talked about this, full disclosure to the audience out there. I believe our number twos and number ones are going to be the same here. So why don't you start with your number two? All right. I was going back and forth. I think it's, it, it doesn't even need to be said. We know what these two films are going to be. I was yeah. going back and forth between like what's two, what's one, what's two, what's one. Oh, I wasn't. Oh, okay. Well, my number two is Parasite. It's also my number two. Okay. Great minds think alike. All right. So Parasite, when I watch movies, I am... Let's start... Hold, hold let's on. Let's get let a 3,000... Let me unbutton my shirt here. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to take off my shirt. <laughs> when I watch movies, like, I am constantly kind of chasing the type of feeling that I got when I saw Parasite. Yes. So I saw Parasite at BAM, one of my favorite theaters in Brooklyn, and I was just nice. like absolutely floored by this experience. I would say it's the most exhilarated I've felt huh. walking out of a movie theater since Get Out in early 2017, which I also saw yeah. at BAM. And Good comparison. I just feel like this was a director in Bong Joon-ho who was just operating at the peak of his powers. Like I felt like yeah. it was him setting out to make his masterpiece um, and he achieved that. Parasite is a masterpiece. I've only seen a few of his other films, but you know he's definitely someone. After seeing this, like I'm gonna go through through the the catalog, and it's just like every frame of this movie is so meticulously crafted. Like you could just mm-hmm. frame every still as like a piece of art and hang it up right. in your living room. <laughs> I wrote it's immaculate. It's just it is uh, quite composed perfectly. The, the camera movements kept you engaged. Everything is like oh, yeah. so carefully thought out, as you said. And yeah, every second just felt, yeah, perfect. So it's like the first hour, it's like this heist 
comedy and it's kind of kind of one dimensional in a way. Like, and you, I'm just kind of thinking like, okay, where's this going? I know this is not going to kind of be this entire film. It was super necessary to set up the story. What happens in that first hour and is, is very effective and funny and witty. Um, but you know, it's going to turn. And once I'll just say the former housekeeper shows up in the rain this movie does turn. Oh man! And the directions that it takes Dark for turn. the remainder of this film is so fucking <laughs> just incredible, effing <laughs> unpredictable and weird and riveting. And like the last twenty five minutes were just like my jaw is still on the floor at BAM. Like yeah. I don't know if it a hundred percent worked those last twenty minutes, but man, the director. Bong Joon-ho, like he absolutely goes for it. Yeah, no, yeah. it did. It was just, it was a lot to take in at right. the time. So I like walked out like in a daze and I was like, all right, how do I unpack this? Um, I don't want to go like, I don't think we should go into like specifics and spoil it. Cause I know there's still a lot of people that, that, you know, haven't seen Parasite yet, right. but it's just, it's so rich too. It, it's symbolism about, you know, class and capitalism. Yeah. I've heard the and director the family say, dynamics. Yeah. There's no family, no character in the film is, you know, a villain per se, like each has Mm -hmm. their own understandable motives and Mm -hmm. every aspect, you know, the score is incredible. Like that opening, like piano score, Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, has of course these comedic elements, but then bends into horror. I would say it's, it's probably just more of a, of a thriller than, than anything else, but it definitely is this hybrid from a lot of different genres and, Oh my God. Yeah. I just, yeah. Um, I mean, I just have a few things more to say about it. It's yeah. both of our number twos. I, I really want to watch it again mm-hmm. because some of the, the plot elements have kind of slipped away from me, but um, it just really felt like you were there with the characters experiencing what they were and the tension building. And oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's on the level of like Alfred Hitchcock and I really felt like I was watching a, a David Fincher film in a lot of ways in terms of the, the tension and you could cut with a knife and sort of like the mysterious dark elements the to the story. Yeah, yeah. Just the vibe and the mood and the, the precision to the camera. That's yes. very Fincher like. Um, and I mean, just everything that happens in that basement, just Holy shit. And like the, the sequence where the family is drinking in the living room and you know, which leads the to them bef- like hiding right things. Yeah. Yeah. Take the before turns. Right. I mean, yeah. that, that tension building was just amazing to watch. And yeah, I just honestly, it threw me for a loop and I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah. I will say, you know, I was texting feverishly like a bunch of people afterwards, like, go see Parasite. Have you seen Parasite? Um, yeah. You know, I was texting my brother. He unfortunately over Christmas break broke the news to me that uh, he, rather than seeing it, just read the plot on, on Wikipedia, which like physically hurt my soul. Like I'm still recovering <laughs> from that. So that's tough. In this case, don't don't be like him and, and just and, and and read the plot. I don't know why. That's that's maybe the most disappointing thing I've ever heard him say. Um, watch Parasite. You know it's on demand now. I'm sure you can find it. You know wherever you get your yeah. on demand content. You know shell out the four bucks to rent it on Amazon or whatever. Like it is a spectacular cinematic experience. And I'm just so glad that it exists. And again, like just that feeling of exhilaration watching it, the turns the story takes, the themes, every element that went into the film was, yeah, as you said, immaculate. So it is my number two. 
And Rob, so, are we ready to go to our number one, which uh, we think yeah, we know it's I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Captain Marvel. No, um, yeah, it yeah. Is... <laughs> so without further ado, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. All right, so, so who should take the lead here? This is a, uh, <laughs> it's an R-rated. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, shot is, on 35 millimeter film. Uh, it is shot, on shot in three different aspect ratios. Five already different in the cam- aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah, three different aspect first, ratios. First, let's start the aspect camera- ratios. <laughs> yeah, five different camera systems. I don't even know how many lenses. Uh, you know, the just the process of the technical elements of this film. You're, DP yeah, Rob, you're, Robert you're Richardson. Up by the I love all that stuff. Uh, obviously, this is the Quentin Tarantino film written and directed by. Uh, it's his ninth film, and he claims he will make ten films. So this is a big one. We'll see. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll see if he I'll sticks believe that to when that. I see it. But yeah, yeah. And this was my favorite movie of the year when I saw it. Uh, it hasn't ever left that spot. Honestly, mm. it's my favorite movie of the year by a long shot. Like. Mm. I definitely think it's my favorite of the year. One of my favorite of the decade. It was uh, both in po- our top 20 of the decade. Yeah. This and Parasite, I will say, were in our top 20 of the decade. They were. Slots, but, yeah. <laughs> and I sort of wanted to like justify that by making them one and two. I, I still think Parasite's my number two. I, I really want to watch it again, though. Um, anyway, uh, you know, obviously, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt lead this film. Margot Robbie... Uh, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth were the two characters there. Uh, I mean, just the buddy buddy film elements of this movie, um, everything we've talked about already on this podcast about it, plus plus so much more. Uh, I can't yeah, wait we to did watch a deep it again dive at home. Review, yeah, uh, like a thirty minute review of of just Once Upon a Time in Hollywood back in the summer when it came out. I rewatched this movie for a third time last night. I fired it up on my own. Nice little personal projector that I bought a few months ago. And Very cool. Yeah, you know, I bought the, the four, 4K Blu-ray, of course, physical media nice. forever. You know, we're physical media oh, yeah. people. And <laughs> Heads. It, so it's fresh in my mind. And like, to that point, the rewatchability factor of this movie is just off yes. the charts. I mean, it's just a world you want to spend time in. It's characters yeah. you want to hang with. It arrived, yeah, in July. It was the first great movie of 2019, and it's leaving as the best movie of the year. It's just, it's also mm-hmm. a really fun movie to talk about when it first came out. Like everyone I yeah. knew saw this movie in theaters. So there was that communal aspect. That's a rare thing, you know, with where we're at and how we consume media now, uh-huh. something that people really went to the theaters to see and they wanted to talk about and be a part of it together. Yeah. Not all of Quentin Tarantino's films are successful, you know, huge successes at the box office, but this one was made for about a hundred million has done over 300 million. Now, mm-hmm. Uh, globally, so a huge financial uh, windfall for uh, Tarantino. But beyond that, I mean, like you said, just uh, the cultural impact it had, and even my mom saw this film. So who my mom is, yeah, and she's. I, I didn't really expect her to love it, but we actually talked on the phone for like forty-five minutes about <laughs> this movie. She couldn't stop talking about it, and I was like, "She's like the lenses, you know, like, Rob. The lenses." <laughs> yeah, it was just like the most engaging conversation I've had with her about a movie in a while, and yeah. so I found that to be really, you know, like heartfelt and charming. And yeah. this movie is heart- heartfelt and charming and Definitely. sentimental about classic Hollywood. And I think we learned a lot about, you know, Quentin Tarantino through this film, like Definitely. what his interests are and how he grew up in, 
you know, in the Hollywood area and watching old Westerns and just his knowledge base about the history of cinema is, is quite, uh, you know, apparent oh, in this insane. film. Yeah. And, and I mean, just the performances, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, I think they both could win an Oscar for their performances, you know, possibly Tarantino for, for writing or for directing or picture perhaps. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think this movie is going to go down in history as like, one of Quentin Tarantino's top three movies, probably. Definitely. I have to point out again, again, cause I, I rewatched it last night, just the details to build this world of summer of 1969, Hollywood, the music, the cars, the wardrobe, the, the radio, the such a nice, yeah. the lights, um, the neon lights. Yeah. The, yeah, that, that montage, the neon light montage is, is beautiful. The commercials on the TV, the, the yeah. movies and the fake movies and TV that, that, uh, you know, Leo's character stars in. I, I right. love that use of the radio, like such an effective tactic to illustrate the time period. Uh-huh. Cinematography, I mean, we, we've talked a, a bit about already, but like the tracking shots of the cars, the shots right. of, of dusk. Dusk, yeah, yeah. it's so beautiful. I know. In the summer, the, the late orange summer. Orange and purple light, yeah. Oh, I'm like, the just the little <laughs> moments too of like the camera. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus, I just yeah, I almost passed out. Um, what the little moments? Yeah, I had like a moan, like a mid moan as I was talking about the uh, <laughs> it's fine. The cinematography here, the little moments of like the camera slowly panning around, like Cliff Booth's trailer home or Rick Dalton's home, like when they're right. Um, it, this isn't like the first thirty minutes, like just to reveal what's around them. The amazing crane shots from like Rick's yeah. pool up and over the house into Sharon mm-hmm. Tate's home, or up yeah. over the entrance of the drive-in movie theater as we track right. Cliff pulling into his trailer trailer home. Like, it's just beautiful. And I, I'm Staggering. a sucker for you know a love letter to this era of Hollywood. Yeah, um, this is one of my favorite like vibe like hangout movies that hangout, I've ever seen. Yeah. Just um, some of the best sequences also. It feels like Pulp Fiction in that way where it's going to go down as like, oh, let's just go watch like the Stunt Ranch 20-minute sequence. Oh, yeah, the or, Spawn Ranch or... Yeah, the, the scene or, where, sorry, not Stunt Ranch, uh, Spawn Ranch. Yeah. And, you know, let's watch uh, the Western with Timmy, Timothy Oliphant yeah, and Julia Butters. Yeah, freaking out in the trailer. Yeah, like that sequence, That's that might be my favorite like 30 minutes of the movie. Oh. Um, I mean, obviously the the all the flashbacks and cutaways of segments of Rick Dalton's career as you said and you know then the big like dogfight flamethrower pool boy climax like <laughs> that, that ending, was it's yeah. hysterical but it's still the ending is so jarring freaking awesome burner to yeah. a crisp um and fun yeah so, just fun even though it's like horrific violence like it you know quentin tarantino does that very well yeah maybe some people found that some people maybe found that to be a little like tired and whatever but the way that it was executed here i think was like really actually charming and like a lot of fun even though it was horrific so uh it's the manson family like you know they if there's anyone that maybe deserves to be taken out by a flamethrower it's a member of the manson family (laughs) um on the set of lancer like that performance like leo he'll get nominated for best actor might win that performance, though, when they're on the set, it kicks into another gear. Like, it, yeah, it's it's like I was thinking about like Leo. He's playing an actor in the movie, and that mm-hmm. actor is playing another character when they're on the set mm-hmm. there. And then so he's going from like this fake going into this fake character, and then out into like the yeah. character that he's actually playing. 
but even when he's out of the character, he's still playing the character of Rick Dalton. Like, and then does that like, make sense? Like, yeah. I'm in the Matrix. It's very meta, that. and he's like, like yelling at himself and yeah, so questioning complex. his talent. Yeah, I mean that. I think that scene in the trailer and that that whole sequence really like his acting with Julia Butters on the porch. That oh yeah, is she's incredible. Oh yeah, like just the way that character is written and just like what yeah. she represents in Hollywood, right. like. And yeah, the way that that scene, you know, the ups and downs, it's like a microcosm of his career on that set of like Rick Dalton's yeah. fake career. And he, he turns into like triumph and there's that great memeable moment of Rick fucking Dalton, you know, and he's yeah, clenching yeah. <laughs> the gun. Um, it's just, you know, Tarantino, it's his warmest film. It's his most accessible. It's his tender. You know, it's it's refreshing entry into his career, I think. And it's also probably like the funniest movie of 2019, even though... Maybe, like, yeah. yeah. It's just... And... I, I think too, like so many great scenes, but mm-hmm. part of me feels like the most referenced and talked about scene from this movie ten years from now will be the scene of Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate in the movie theater, experiencing yeah. her on screen and taking that all in yeah, for the first the time and seeing shout audience to, reactions. Shout out to Westwood. Yeah, I feel like. Have you been to that theater? Is that it's yeah? It's in. It's basically on UCLA's campus. Mm. It's uh, it's at the bottom of campus in Westwood. So. That scene alone could just like inspire a generation of actors. I feel like yeah. you know it, it's really, um, really just a something that I a scene I, I've just never really seen on, on screen before. And right, and I, I want to shout out just Quentin Tarantino's direction and just his his way of making these side characters. All the I mean the cast is oh, massive, yeah. and all the different characters that played a small part, but felt so lived in and felt so real and that clearly you know were they were all given amazing notes of who they were or oh, who yeah. they I'm are sure, like, in that character from Tarantino it's like here's a 30 page just, backstory for this line exactly this part it, that it has felt five like <laughs> yeah he just knew every little intricacy of all of these people and and created this like tapestry of beautiful moments and performances and uh yeah it was hands down to me my favorite movie of the year as it was for me all right i think that is going to do it for this episode of must go faster thanks so much as always to everyone for listening reminder to share and subscribe leave us rate review tell your uh tell your friends family yeah pets anyone and um, we like dogs thanks for listening peace thanks so much talk to you soon peace ben